Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Hello, everyone. It is Thursday, April 9th, 2020. And welcome from San Diego, California, where I am live. Not exactly hunkered down, but I am, uh, of course, broadcasting from indoors. So uh, greetings to all on this COVID-19 continuum. And as always, I'm happy to report that I have Bill Padalo with me. Welcome, Bill. Hi, Charles. Good to be here. Uh, So Bill will be discussing in a bit, uh, it's a revisit and some really, uh, I would say it's both scintillating and appalling developments in his case. But as always, we're talking about his Oregon case, and he'll give uh, further details on that to refresh people's memory. Uh, Bottom line there, some pretty outrageous developments, and uh, Bill will be discussing that and how the the defendants are playing very fast and loose with subject matter jurisdiction. Now, on the COVID front itself, the the kind of messiness, particularly in California, of pinning down exactly where things are at, that, that is continuing, and I will be addressing that as well. And as as I usually like to convey, uh, this show is brought to you by GTC Honors and the Living Lies blog, which is now at livinglies.me. So as always, Neil appreciates, I appreciate any amount you're able to donate on the blog. And again, that's that URL, that website, is livinglies.me. So on the COVID front, uh, there are a lot of developments in California. Again, it's kind of a patchwork. It's kind of a mess. Uh, There is still a foreclosure moratorium theoretically in effect. There are some federal components to that, which actually are fairly, I would say that they're, well, I'm not going to quite call them robust, but they do, they do genuinely matter and they do genuinely make a difference. Uh, what's, what's in play is that in the recent legislation passed by Congress, there is basically a moratorium that applies for any particular loan that's federally funded. And, of course, 
large numbers of 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 loans out there, the securitized loans that we so often deal with from the mid two thousand era uh, up until till let's say five six years ago, that whole space, that whole uh, surface of millions of loans, a lot of those are federally backed mortgage loans. And this recent congressional legislation, the the combination of bills, uh, the so-called uh, COVID-19 Relief Act, you could almost call it. That's my term for it. Uh, for 60 days, uh, foreclosures are not to go forward on federally-backed mortgage loans. And this bill also prohibits rental evictions for 120 days where the property at issue is secured by a government-backed mortgage. So that is millions of loans. It certainly is much more of a Band-Aid than anything fundamental. And that is, I think, not to put too fine a point on it, a clear example of institutional bias where, again, there's this kind of patchwork, uh, literally trillions of dollars. This is swapping what was done in 2008. It's being thrown at the banks and those associated at the top with the banks. And Congress and the executive branch are both talking about doing another uh, round of so-called uh, rescue. Again, it's predicated to be in the trillion dollar range, possibly two or three trillion. I mean, the numbers are fantastical if you look at the historical reality outside of 2008. And even compared to that, this is becoming uh, just a behemoth that we've never seen before. And how much of that is really applying and, and literally just trickling down to regular people people with their homes, people in their suburbs, people in even urban areas that own homes, I would say there's a lot of limit to how that is benefiting those individuals. So, again, there are some provisions that are helping. California does have both a foreclosure and eviction moratorium of sorts. So it needs to be pointed out that one of the aspects to particularly the the eviction moratorium in California is that one needs to show uh, as the kind of presumptive evictee, one needs to show under the California uh, acts in place right now, one needs to show that you were quote unquote uh, affected by COVID-19. And of course, there's very little guidance on what that would look like. And it will not surprise when this all plays out in the coming months if the strictures end up playing out in such a way that institutions benefit the same lenders who are causing so many issues and engaged in so much, frankly, illegal conduct. Uh, Bill, so if uh, you would go into... For the listeners, you're going to be talking about your Oregon case, and then you've got some other interesting uh, revisits to notary fraud, and I know you'll be addressing that as well. 
So go ahead and take <laughs> sure. the floor. Well, sure. Actually, the uh, the revisiting of the notary fraud and the Lorraine Brown guilty plea years ago uh, with DocX <clears throat> actually, you know, ties right into my my personal current case in Oregon. So, uh, so let's just start off with you know talking about a post I made last week. Uh, is the six year uh, scheme of Lorraine Brown still running to this day? Now, uh, to refresh the memory of the listeners. DocX and LPS was uh, the, the key company that was that that led to the um, robo signing scandal and the national settlements back in 2012. And uh, Lorraine Brown, who ran DocX, was the only person to be indicted uh, out of that whole uh, series of events. And she actually pled guilty to mail and wire fraud in filing in the six-year scheme. This is right on the Department of Justice website. It's in her own pleadings. It's all public information. But she pled guilty to mail and wire fraud specifically for filing one million fraudulent documents into the public land records across the United States for purposes of carrying out illegal foreclosures. Okay, so this wasn't just, you know, in the consent judgments, they signed off to stop robo-signing behaviors and all these types of things that they were going to clean up their act and not do this. However, this was an admission that there were still in existence a million fraudulent documents sitting out there to which she went to prison for mail-and-wire fraud. Now, my point that I made in my blog post is why in the world to this day, and in my own personal case, for example, and many others out there, as I look at as an investigator on case files on my desk, are these one million fraudulent documents allowed to be utilized and recirculated through the mail and wire and into courts across the country to this day for purposes of either defending or prosecuting typically foreclosure actions? Now, in my case, they're trying to somehow defend title using these illegal fraudulent documents, which they know were fraudulent, um, and which they were bound by the consent orders to remediate these fraudulent documents. So back when they signed this, the fraudulent, or I'm sorry, the consent order in 2011, which was around April 13th of 2011, that was precisely the time uh, when they started to – I was in litigation personally on a, on a separate case um, in Oregon on my particular property that I'm currently litigating to this day, but it's a different case. But I was litigating and challenging the uh, foreclosure at that time, and I was, I was challenging these documents. And on the heels of that consent order, they were supposed to not proceed and use those documents. They were supposed to remediate and uh, either execute uh, proper ones, get the proper authority, do whatever they had to do, but they were certainly not to proceed with them and use, utilize them, which they did in my first case. And, uh, and they're continuing to do now to this day. So... In uh, part of that, uh, well, again, going back to my post, um, I posited this question, look, is there some sort of uh, statute of limitations on mail and wire fraud? I mean, if someone commits uh, these crimes and goes to prison and admits to it, does that somehow mean that people can, you know, pick up the baton and carry the torch uh, later on down the line and, and grab those same fraudulent documents known to be fraudulent and start to recirculate? Well, the, the obvious question to that is, 
is no, okay? But uh, but that's exactly what, what we're seeing. So um, I, I've, I filed some complaints, and I went to the Department of Justice, for example, in, in Oregon, and I posted and posited this, this issue to them and saying, listen, I've got a situation where uh, the attorneys who I'm up against and uh, the parties who – uh, I'm, I'm litigating, or at least I have been up until this point. Um, they continue to use these fraudulent documents that your office, the Department of Justice, you, you as one of the 50 AGs, was responsible for the investigation that led to the consent judgments and consent orders that falls under your jurisdiction. I'm just, you know, I'm, I've got a complaint here. Um, they're continuing to mail and wire and utilize these documents, trying to urge the court that they are uh, valid and legal and legit. When, uh, in my own personal case, not only do I have the consent judgments that uh, support the fact that they're fraudulent, but I also have, for example, and it took me a while to get this in uh, through requests, but the notary who signed one of the key documents in my case on the, the, the doc that came out of DocX, um, I know that she was disciplined years ago for that behavior, and I was never really able to get my hands on what happened with her. And her name was Christina Ann Sauer. She was a, a popular name coming out of uh, Mendota Heights, Minnesota's LPS Default Solutions. And, uh, and I was able to now get a hold of, uh, through a Minnesota Data Practices Act request, the formal court uh, administrative order against her, which spells out very clearly that uh, her license was retroactively revoked back to the time when she applied for her commission in February of 2009 uh, for malfeasance and for a number of violations. She, uh, her real last name was Reagan. She didn't change her name. She was doing all these things illegally. And so anyway, they revoked... Um, uh, her license retroactive, so it, it's as though she never had it, really. Um, and in spite of the consent orders, for example, and, and the fact that uh, they know that this notary, uh, her commission was revoked and so on and so forth, again, they're continuing to uh, not disclose that to the court. They're continuing to urge the court that um, it, it, it simply needs to look the other way. It reminds me of a, a saying by the Marx Brothers. It's a famous line, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Because in, in my case, the documents are prima facially fraudulent, all the documents that they have. In fact, uh, the sole document that uh, the opposition is saying gives them superior title is a special warranty deed that comes from a complete stranger to title, and uh, it's J.P. Morgan Case Bank, Chase Bank, N.A., which um, I've written about. And yet they were telling the court, no, that's that's not what it says, Your Honor. It's J.P. Morgan Chase. You know, so it's it, it's clearly you know your eyes can see who the grantor was. But the most egregious thing on that document, more so, is the fact that in discovery we've got uh, about a thousand to two thousand documents in a data dump. And they actually uh, cut and pasted and used a notary block on their special warranty deed that belonged to a different document. So they're, they're cutting and pasting notary acknowledgments on their block. So, I mean, they've got all of these issues with these fraudulent documents, and what they're doing is um, – 
pushing him into court, and they have been for a year and a half, uh, trying to tell the court that there's nothing wrong with this, Your Honor. Look the other way. Uh, and and so what their strategy has been, and this is where it gets really, really egregious, and this is what they're doing to others, not just me. But they engaged from the very beginning in what I call a scorched earth policy of papering the court. And they were papering it when you don't have a defense, when you don't have a legal argument or a leg to stand on, uh, they decided that they were going to just brazenly uh, make false arguments and file frivolous filings and just paper the court endlessly to the tune of about $130,000, which they claim is a, attorney expenses over a year and a half. Now, this case is so crystal clear, it should have been over, you know, probably within 30 days of filing the complaint on judgment on the pleadings. I mean, it's that obvious that that their documents are facially invalid. However, they, in a year and a half, in papering the court and forcing me to have to respond to every single thing that they put in and going through four judges, they urged the court to try to dismiss my case for lack of uh, subject matter jurisdiction. Okay, now, it's ludicrous, number one, to have a title dispute and to tell a court that here's two people having a dispute over title and to tell the court uh, or to urge the court that they don't have jurisdiction because the, the courts ultimately have jurisdiction over a title dispute. However, in doing so, they urged the court uh, to, to dismiss for lack of subject matter jurisdiction. The court agreed to do that, so now I'm currently on appeal, uh, because what the court did is they, they, they closed the case and said basically we have no authority. So it, it, it's essentially it's over. There's nothing more for the court to do. The next thing I have to do is just... Uh, take it up with the appellate court and say, look, uh, you know, somebody's got to take jurisdiction here and, and then raise the, uh, the issues that I, I saw as being uh, inappropriate or uh, wrong and so on and so forth. But, um, but it didn't stop there. So what, what the opposition has done is they, after the court closed the case and says we have no authority, they're now filing motions for uh, attorney fees of $130,000 to uh, and they they say right out to deter me uh, from trying to seek any justice or to seek my rights and due process rights. So they're saying dismiss the case for lack of jurisdiction, but with prejudice against Padlow. So it, it's absurd. So the court says I'd have no authority, but I'm going to take the authority to to make sure that uh, I hamstring Padlow, and now I'm going to entertain allowing you to get attorney fees. Um, uh, on top of this, to, to punish or bankrupt him, to make life miserable for him, and, and to punitively uh, make it difficult for him to get his uh, constitutional rights uh, uh, looked at uh, under under a court that does have jurisdiction. So this is where it's, it's really egregious, and, and now I want to touch upon uh, something here with what they're doing to another guy that many of you listeners know. His name is Eric Maines, and Eric is the former FDIC bank regulator who had a WAMU loan and uh, is dealing with many of the same issues, and he's just been through hell, so to speak, in um, all the different various courts trying to fight for his justice and to his, for his um, due process rights. And, and in his case, uh, he has Christina Sauer's notary on a, on a fraudulent assignment as well. And what's interesting about that is not only have they continued to, again, use that fraudulent document in commerce, in courts, and wiring, and mailing, and arguing, and telling in the court that there's nothing wrong with it, 
But when he sued Christina Sauer personally in 2018, it's my understanding, um, she was able to lawyer up, and it's uh, apparently Chase and LPS or Black Knight now, uh, has picked up her tab, and they came in as her attorneys, and in the course of the litigation, uh, they never disclosed that their client was uh, administratively disciplined in Minnesota, and that her uh, license was, again, revoked retroactively. Now, Eric had raised that issue to the court, and their attorneys, and I, and and. You know, I guess what I'm saying here is, is the evidence is going to be very clear, and I'm very optimistic now that what I'm talking about right now, we're going to finally get some very uh, serious attention and is going to make some national headline news very soon. I'm very confident of that. Um, I think that some of this stuff is now starting to unravel, and what uh, I have in my case and what Eric has clearly has in his case um, is that this is clearly uh, racketeering and RICO. The, the law firms that are pushing this stuff and are utilizing these documents and are lying about um, uh, the, the arguments and everything in court and they're lying about um, their knowledge uh, of, of using these fraudulent documents and everything, uh, it's clearly to carry on this scheme and to profit from it. And they are, they're doing so very brazenly and uh, and I think now uh, we're getting very, very close to um, blowing the lid off this thing and getting some serious attention to it because, and I'll let you get back uh, in a sec, uh, Charles, about, you know, the COVID issue. Uh, but in, in light of the, the COVID developments and the bailouts that are going on right now, there are, I'm sure, some unhidden uh, bailouts that are, are behind the mask of the whole COVID uh, crisis that we're not seeing. And I'll tell you right now, if we're going to start bailing out uh, these these entities again who not only got caught for committing this fraud back in 2008 and, and beforehand, but they're continuing to do it to this day unabated. And uh, we better think twice before we start handing them huge chunks of money again uh, when, when they have utterly and failed to clean up their act, and they're continuing, continuously um, carrying out and pushing this scheme in our courts and upon uh, individuals, myself and many others included. Uh, that's great analysis, and I think you covered a lot of fundamental issues. The one aspect to your case that I wanted to highlight for listeners is to show just how kind of absurd and offensive this attorney's fees motion is. It's being filed under the rubric of an excusable neglect motion. Isn't that correct? In other words, well, yeah, I mean, what they did is the court says, go ahead, draft the order, and I'll sign it. We're going to dismiss the case. And then they uh, filed their, their the order for the court to, to, to sign off, but they screwed up. And so now they're trying to file a motion to set aside the judgment that they crafted, that they partook in, and they wrote, and they want to have it set aside and, and formulated to their benefit so that not only do they get the fees, but they essentially get the claim that, that the case was adjudicated when it never was and that I'm, I'm going to be you know cut out with prejudice. I mean, that, those are both doubly outrageous under any conventional legal procedure. I think it's extraordinary what this court is entertaining 
um, you know, in terms of the institutional bias uh, angle, I mean, is the firm on the other side a large firm that often defends Chase, or this is more of a homeowner defendant type of situation, the people who are there now? I mean, where do you see the attorneys? Uh, oh, I can tell you right now, and they didn't make any secret of it. I mean, they told the court it's a smaller firm, but their biggest client is Fidelity Title. And uh, they told the court that this is a very important case for them because their client is Fidelity. And that's the other egregious thing. They're saying they, there's never been a – they're trying to collect on a subrogated claim uh, saying that Fidelity is out the 130, but they've never filed anything in, in court on behalf of Fidelity is a stranger to the action. So they're trying to double dip. They're saying that uh, we collected the fees from uh, the elderly couple who's in possession, they, and now we're trying to get it recouped for Fidelity and under a claim of subrogation when they never filed anything. So they made no qualms about it. This is about the insurance carrier who knows and sees tremendous liability here on a large scale, and that's why they've got to, they're trying to punish me impunitively and, 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 and stuff. I ain't going away. But that's what they're trying to do uh, because this is going to explode on a much bigger than my than just my case. Uh, good information. I mean, that's how outrageous this is. So, yes, on the uh, COVID uh, front, I think one thing that listeners can do going forward and just kind of watching and processing everything that's going on, I, I think what we can all say just uh, as Americans watching what's been happening over the last several weeks, one thing about the COVID situation is it is critical to tap into some media. I think it will be useful, arguably essential, for people to go online and especially use uh, different search approaches. Um, I'm not endorsing any particular search engine. I think DuckDuckGo is very effective, and it does not keep track of your results, meaning it's not being tracked by some Uber uh, government or government-related or third-party NGO, that type of that type of organization. Uh, DuckDuckGo searches, you just have to you use Google, just Google DuckDuckGo, and you can make that search engine. I'm not saying it's the only alternative to accomplish what I'm talking about, but it is a good resource, and when you do Google searches through DuckDuckGo, it's a DuckDuckGo search, of course, then you pull up a lot of uh, good, detailed Alternatives, whatever it is you're searching for. So I think using online resources for those who already do that, and if you don't do it now, uh, I would encourage you to start doing it and 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 use the World Wide Web for all the info that's there, because there's really a need, as much as there ever has been, to be updated on what exactly currently is happening. One thing that those can do with current litigation is you can go to court websites, be they federal, be they state, superior courts, of course, within states. Uh, you can look up almost any related case on websites, uh, except in some cases unlawful detainer cases. More importantly even than that, virtually every government institution now of any level has a COVID-19 
update section, and there's a specific link that will direct you to the COVID-19 policies that that institution is promulgating. So you will see for the federal court districts, and uh, you've got northern, you've got eastern, you've got southern, you've got central, you will see on their specific websites, and again, a simple online search will pull up their websites. You go to their websites, you go you go to the COVID link, and it'll give you the current policies. You have to wade through them a bit to get the exact picture. Same for the superior courts, same for the general orders coming in California, often from the governor's uh, executive position. So that's all we have time for today, and I appreciate you being uh, with us, Bill, and Neil will be back next week. Thanks, Charles. I look forward to uh, some more news on this very soon. Absolutely. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.